This is Jason Sizemore, editor and publisher of Apex Magazine, and you are listening to Dead Hand Radio. Jason, welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining me, man. Um, the podcast, Dead Hand Radio, is Cold War. It's a Cold War podcast. Uh, sounds good to me. I'm a child of the 80s, so I grew up, you know, during the Reagan era Cold War. As a child of the 80s, growing up under that, uh, you know, that time of uncertainty, I, it seems like throughout history, we're always faced with, you know, each decade has a certain span that has a period of just extreme uncertainty. A uh, couple, couple of times throughout the eighties, we faced that. Do you remember any of that from a personal perspective or did you hear your parents talking about that as you were growing up? I, I do remember hearing a lot about it. Um, I was raised in as Southern Baptist and when the, Favorite topics of the preachers was always about nuclear devastation and how it tied in to revelations and the end time. So as a kid, I heard a lot uh, uh, about the scary side of the Cold War there. Interesting. And what, so how, how did you feel about that? I mean, obviously it was scary, but did you think that it was actually going to happen? Did you think that? the angels were going to come down and take us away before Armageddon, you know, took over or whatever. What, what, what did you like think if you remember? No, I, I remember um, when I was towards the, you know, younger end there, you know, when I was maybe between eight and 10, eight and 12, I, you know, I was a full fledged um, believer that, the trumpets would blow, whether they were actual trumpets or the boom of a nuclear warhead going off, all in the same, as the preachers would tell us. Yeah, uh, I was often afraid. Uh, I remember being a scared little kid in bed and hearing, you know, I was raised in southeast Kentucky, so I would often hear coal trucks rumble by. And I don't know if you've been by a highway when a coal truck rumbles by that's completely full of coal. It shakes the ground and it booms. And, and I would hear these and be all scared for a minute, like, oh, my gosh, was is this it? You know, uh, as I got older, I kind of outgrew such fear. Uh, particularly on the religious side, um, although I did keep a fairly healthy fear of, you know, thermonuclear disaster um, through the later 80s. But eventually I became mature enough where, uh, you know, it wasn't a all-consuming worry. It's like, well, it's out of my hands. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Let's talk about your role as a science fiction writer 
editor, magazine founder, and what you're doing with your company at Apex Magazine, if you don't mind. Just give us a little background on that. Well, uh, in 2005, I was working for the city of Lexington as a software support engineer. I went to school at Transylvania University in Lexington uh, and got a degree in software development. By the time I was in my early 30s, I found myself at the city in a relatively dead-end job working for the Division of Risk Management, which is basically insurance accounting and risk mitigation. Just totally was not anything I had any interest in. I found that I needed a creative outlet. So I began writing and also I took an interest in um, publishing, uh, partially because of my friendship with a couple of local writers, Christopher Rowe and Gwenda Bond. Uh, They ran a a little quarterly do-it-yourself nice little zine called Say. And I took inspiration from that, decided, okay, I want to do this. And so I taught, you know, I went through some online, training for editors incorporated you know apex and started put you know put out call for submissions and then um i guess it's about six months later first issue of apex digest came out i did 12 issues of that saw the uh ebook tsunami coming and the emergence of the internet not just being present but consuming people's lives and just being online all the time. So I decided to take the magazine out of print and transition it online. That happened in 2010. We did 120 issues over 10 years, one a month, uh, until May 2019 when we went on hiatus because I had some serious health issues. Now that I've got them mostly behind us, we have relaunched and we'll have the magazine come back this coming January with issue 121. That is kind of the path the magazine side took. Uh, around 2006-7, I decided I also wanted to do some books because I thought the emerging print-on-demand technology was interesting. And I wanted to play around with that. And the very first book I did was an anthology of horror called Egresomnia, which is Latin for man's darkest dreams. Incredibly, my very first anthology that I edited picked up a Stoker Award, which is you know one of the leading literary awards for horror fiction which did a couple things. It, one, ignited my fire for editing, and two, provided, whether it was earned or not, (laughs) some legitimacy to my editing. Well, as it turned out, I seemed to have uh, some degree of talent in the area of editing, more so than I had in writing. So I kind of gave up on the writing, focused on the editing. That's how the book side came about. The legitimacy of doing that anthology and getting the Stoker Award nomination also certainly helped the magazine side as well. And started getting lots of notice for uh, the stories that we were publishing in the magazine. It, did that replace your your job with the city, or do you still do that to support yourself and then do the magazine as a as a creative outlet? Well, I did end up leaving that job after a few years, uh, but it wasn't until 2015, so nearly 10 years before I was in a position financially 
where I could give up the full-time job and the insurance and the, the stability to become basically, you know, a small business owner who supplemented his income with freelance work. So yeah, around 2015 is when I transitioned to doing publishing and editing full-time. Very cool. Well, congrats on being in that position because that's a, that's a scary place to be for, for somebody who has a steady job benefits, especially if you have a family. Yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for my wife, you know, who has a steady job and a successful career and also insurance, uh, Undoubtedly, I would not be able to do this full time. Uh, so, okay. So you are more uh, in t- into the editing end of the creative process, which is absolutely critical. I mean, without good editors, readers would be at the mercy of writers who sometimes don't do a lot of self-editing. Uh, some of them do. And, you know, that that's that's okay, but a lot of them just prefer to write write good stories and then send it to an editor to do the polishing. You obviously chose science fiction or or fiction as a as a path. Oh yeah, we we do exclusively speculative fiction, um, in particular sci-fi, dark fantasy, and horror. And the horror is what I would call speculative horror. So you won't have stories of like serial killer, but you may have something where a ghost is, you know, haunting someone. Pretty cool. I, uh, well, as I mentioned, I did a whole series on the podcast with, uh, people who shared their ghost stories, myths, legends, haunted, uh, buildings and, uh, it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, even if you're not a believer of paranormal, uh, you still can't help but be interested to hear stories that, um, you know, and the impact that, that it has on these people's lives. I mean, it's life-changing for some people. Yeah. Uh, so when I shared the religious stuff as a teenager, I think some of my uh, beliefs and paranormal kind of faded with that as well. Even so, some of my favorite videos to watch online, you know, are these compilations of spooky things happening to security guards and ghosts in cemeteries. Uh, I I love that stuff. Um, I can't say I'm necessarily a believer but you know I'm, i wouldn't really say i'm necessarily a disbeliever either <laughs> with your interests leaning towards the the fiction more of the science fiction and speculative fiction do you how 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 much of an impact do you think growing up as a cold war as a child of the cold war and having that fear of nuclear annihilation how much impact do you think that had on your creative pursuits it had a fairly large impact. I think it's part of the equation as to why I prefer and publish dark 
SF and Dark Fantasy and Spec Horror. As a kid, uh, some of my favorite sci-fi was was stuff like Alien and The Thing. I was more an Alien and The Thing kind of guy than, let's say, you know, um, Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. I think a lot of that has to do, you know, because of the Cold War was often technology-based, that, that kind of stuff um, appealed to me more. All of those movies that you mentioned were all horror films and uh i i just wanted to push you a little bit on the on the subject of science fiction uh because the the thing and alien were also science fiction um but did you have any like more uh of of a purist um uh like for any science fiction films or books, like uh, something that would be uh, more science fiction would be like um, Close Encounters, E.T., Back to the Future, Terminator. Those are more science fiction than horror. But did you, were you interested in those kind of movies at all? Oh yeah, Um, certainly uh, Terminator was big. Um, Close Encounters is a movie that I've long loved and uh, maybe not as influential on me as, you know, the more horror-tinged SF of The Thing and and Alien and Aliens. Um, But, oh, absolutely. I, I totally ate that stuff up. Now, when it comes to books, uh, Where I grew up in Southeast Kentucky, uh, access to books was very limited. So most of the stuff I had to read back then was your um, choose your own adventure type things and Christian fantasy stuff. Think, um, you know, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. things like that, C.S. Lewis. Uh, It wasn't until college when my access to greater material before I was able to expand um, my reading tastes and I devoured Robert Heinlein's novels and some of the other stuff like uh, Canticle for Leibowitz and and Dune. Uh, You know, these great sci-fi epics that have a kind of a darker spin to them. Also, I was big into the Stephen King's Dark Tower series, which I think it's fair to say, you know, it's fairly dark. And um, some of the more sci-fi stuff I liked was that it was more modern for at the time was stuff like uh, Ender's Game. I was a huge Orson Scott Card fan back in the 90s ate up a lot of Stephen Donaldson's work. I don't think I have one particular category that's always appealed to me when it comes to books, but pretty much if you put it in front of me, I'll probably read it. And in your your position as editor-in-chief, I'm sure you read a lot of uh, stuff that fits into those categories, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I get a lot of stories 
uh, make it some of this. Uh, uh, you can categorize from one end of the genre to the other, just stories that land some just somewhere in there. Uh, partially because Apex Magazine has a fairly broad scope of material that we publish. Uh, there's more of a tone and voice and point of view that we're looking for in the fiction and not so much like a defined subgenre. And so because of that, we, uh, we do receive a, very, a widely varied number of kinds of stories. And as editor, you know, uh, I get to enjoy that aspect of uh, the job. It's kind of a perk. Yeah, most definitely, it would seem. Uh, you, you have to be a fast reader, I'm sure, to be able to get through all the material that's submitted your way. Um, yeah, the few times I've taken, you know, the reader speed test always been slightly above average so i'm not a slow reader but you know i'm not necessarily a speed reader either so just just a normal reader i think that's encouraging to hear i'm a notorious slow reader in fact i read very little nowadays i listen to audiobooks uh and i love audiobooks because i go walking for about an hour or you know, two hours a day and just to have that audiobook going while I'm walking and let my mind wander. And, you know, sometimes it's fiction, sometimes it's um, more of a historical um, nonfiction type of book, but I listen to a lot of stuff. Uh, and then I listen to podcasts too. I love to listen to, to audio dramas and other podcasts as well. But, uh, there's a, there's a ton of stuff to, you know, to consume. You know, people ask me sometimes if I miss having a, you know, um, eight to five day job. And the answer of course is not really, but uh, there is one aspect of it I do miss and it's the commute oddly enough, because the commute is when I would get to listen to audio books and podcasts um, I don't do near as much as I used to. I try to catch up with them well with podcasts at least um, now and then at night when I'm trying to relax. But otherwise, um, when I'm walking, I find I have a hard time focusing on the book and mostly because I just want to look at everything and spy on people and um look for, you know look for cat neighborhood cats and watch the, the silly squirrels and stuff like that so. yeah i could i could see that i have this beautiful park about a mile away from me so i walk to the park and walk around the park a couple of times and it's just uh you know i, I don't have to worry about uh, bumping into people because there's not a ton of people out there. Mm -hmm. uh, don't have to worry about getting run over by a car. So I, I just literally let my mind wander. The problem that I have even with audiobooks sometimes though is that my mind is so active that I start thinking I'll, I'll be listening to an audiobook and listening and 
you know, like getting absorbed with what I'm listening to. But then all of a sudden I'll start thinking about something that I have to do for work. And then boom, I'm completely ignoring the audio book and my thoughts are focused on what I need to do when I get back. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that drives me crazy. Yeah. I I do have that happen. And maybe this has happened to you as well, where you realize that's occurred and you rewind and you end up having to go back and you're like, was I really zoned out for 20 minutes? (laughs) And you're like, where did that time go? What was? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, Yeah. Cause the, you know, the, the process of deep thinking is something that I do quite a bit of. And when you get into that mode, it's almost like a, a meditative state where you're not, not paying attention to anything externally. You're just into your own mind. Uh, and it, it seems like time slows down for you in your mind, but the world keeps passing you by. And, you know, sometimes minutes, sometimes hours goes by before you realize where you've been. I know that writers experience that um, when they're in the creative mode. Artists also get into that kind of a mindset when they're, whether they're painting or drawing, you know. Um, It just seems like that's that's a zone where the most creative, uh, um, it's, it's the most creative state that you could be in, I think, as a human. You solve problems in that state of mind. Uh, you know who was a master of that? And this is somebody that I've been doing a lot of thinking about lately is Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah. And the first thing that came to mind, though, was mastery of it, you know, drug assisted. I'm a huge Philip K. Dick fan, but I, I don't want to offend fans and acolytes of his. Anybody who knows Philip K. Dick's work and has studied his history. Uh, understands that he was addicted to some heavy drugs by the time he uh, passed away. And I think that was the reason why he passed away was using too many drugs. And it also um, sent him into a state of uh, near insanity. I I believe he might've been committed several times uh, towards the end of his life because of, uh, because he was becoming a danger to himself. Um, now, I'm not an expert on Philip K. Dick himself, but I have been doing a lot of thinking about the work that he did and how he he really stretched the boundaries of what um, what reality is in fiction, in science fiction specifically. And uh, I think it's an interesting um, an interesting exercise for anybody who's interested in science fiction to go down that path and study what Philip K. Dick did. Well, he's definitely visionary and whether or not it was drug assisted or if he, you know, was writing it clean, it it doesn't matter. The work is what deserves to be um, judged. And personally, I judge his work to be incredible and I think it's standing test time as well. So they'll be reading Philip K. Dick centuries from now. I firmly believe that. 
uh, it's an incredibly influential body of work. Yeah. And what I was alluding to was his, his exploration into the, the uh, ideas of what is reality with um, stories like Total Recall. I, I think even at the end of the film, you still don't know if this guy is psychotic and imagining everything that has happened to him or if it's real. I, I imagine, I would like to think that he would be fascinated by some of the um, studies that come out these days by like quantum physicists that um, talk about there is a possibility that this whole reality thing is, you know, something akin to the matrix, right? Um, I think he would be blown away by that. I, I doubt he would even need drugs to fuel his imagination when it comes to some of the things that, you know, phys physicists tell us these days. Yes, I agree. Uh, there are a few other writers who are doing some work with um, more of the technological uh, area of, you know, challenging reality and what is, what is that? Um, I think William Gibson, have you read his his work, William Gibson? I've read several of his novels, and Neuromancer is one of the most influential books that I've read in terms of forming my taste and uh, the way I um, view sci-fi. Even um, you know, it's I was thinking about this when you invited me to be on the show. As was looking up neuro, Neuromancer for some stuff to do with a class I was teaching about how to write an effective opening. And thought occurred to me that the very famous opening line, you know, uh, to Neuromancer, um, sky was the color of a television tuned to a dead channel. Um, kind of has a very Cold War feel to it. Hmm. Good point. Yeah, and although, you know, much of that book is set in Japan and the internet, it feels like it's informed a lot by, you know, the spy chicanery going on in the Cold War and, you know, the use of technology as a way of um, controlling your enemy. And I, I, you know, I doubt William Gibson's Neuromancer is the first book to ever really address that, but it feels like it was the one that really got it 100% right. Tapping into the near past with Cold War and also tapping into what ended up being the near future in terms of, you know, the internet and uh, the uh, online society, how we're always tapped in now. I've talked to several artists and yeah, I'm, I mean, aside from writers, the 
the book Neuromancer is a, a, a wildly influential book. Um, but even for artists, um, there's a photographer um, that I know and I interviewed for my blog. I, I used to do written interviews on my, on my website. And this, uh, this photographer that I interviewed, his name is Liam Wong. He, he is a game developer or game designer. He works for a pretty well-known gaming company, but I won't get into that. But he has branched off and started doing photography. And he was heavily influenced by the film Blade Runner. But his, I asked him what his favorite book was, and he said it was Neuromancer. Uh, I also interviewed a, a digital artist or a concept artist who works in film uh, named Cole Price. And he also named that book as an influential book in his life. So that book has been influential on creative people from every field or every creative field that there is, in my opinion. It's what I would call a touchstone book in that so many different facets of society seems to draw inspiration from it. That's a good point. Yes. Um, <clears throat> now, you're, um, I, I'd like to go back and talk a little bit more about your magazine and the, uh, the process that you go through as the editor um, from receiving a submission and reading that submission and determining which submissions are going to be included in the next magazine. Do you ever come across anything that you read that is almost revolutionary in its scope with what, you know, something that's so innovative that it may be something that you've never even heard before or read before? Ah, that's a really good question. We're talking Neuromancer level, right? And the Beatles and, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, partially because I think, time, you know, time is one of the factors in ultimate judgment of how revolutionary something ends up being. Uh, yeah, you can judge immediately whether something is extremely good or not uh, but in the moment it's way harder to decide whether something is truly revolutionary and uh, now I, I have published some darn good fiction over the years and many notable pieces that are studied and used in classrooms and colleges but as far as you know, like Harlan Ellison level uh, kind of stuff. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I would not be surprised, you know, if we look back 20 years from now and um, say like Rebecca Roan Horses, um, welcome to your authentic Indian experience is seen as, you know, a watershed moment for fiction because it's kind of a, a different and 
unique take with a pretty effective twist at the end, or even maybe some Ursula Vernon's <clears throat> dark fantasy stuff that we've published, uh, like Jackal of Wives. But there's no way I could could just say right now that uh, I feel that uh, they'll ultimately be revolutionary. I do have one book I've published that I think could be seen as groundbreaking. And it's a book I don't even publish anymore. Uh, it's Rosewater by Todd A. Thompson. Apex published that like back in 2016. And then sometime, I think it was in late 2017, Orbit Books in um, the UK approached me about acquiring the rights. And they did. Um, and once the book got wide release and everyone was able to read it, it just totally blew people away, and I often see it on on lists of like groundbreaking modern work and um, how Tade has helped put Nigerian futurists on the map and uh, some of the aspects, of some of the. Uh, technology that he came up with in the book and the way he used it um, was fairly groundbreaking as well. Now, will ultimately be revolutionary? I don't know, but it has a possibility. That's still kudos to you and to the writer for the creative endeavor and for you for recognizing what the book was before anybody else had an opportunity to look at it without your attention to that book and making it available it might have been delayed 10 years or longer uh yeah or maybe no one would have ever had seen it i i, I was just i thought it was pretty darn cool that you know uh, this editor from orbit had taken the time to look through our catalog and had come up with a list of books that she thought were interesting and uh read Rosewater and was blown away by it. And I was like, that's odd. I was too. I published it. And, you know, and so we hit it off. And of course I wasn't going to deny Todd a the opportunity of, you know, having this book published by, you know, a major publishing house. Plus I felt that, yeah, this was, this is a fantastic novel that serves a wider audience and was very happy to to give him the opportunity to help uh, it find a lot more readers. It's a great story, man. Um, as a publisher, is it part of your job to submit story ideas to film companies? No, it is not. Uh, I will add a caveat to that though. Um, due to the frequent interest I received from various scouting agencies and um, IP agents. Uh, I, I do have a representative who um, runs um, kind of an agency that helps 
market your books to people like that and handles queries from people um, looking to buy rights. So kind of in a way uh, for certain books, not every author wants us to do that, but about half and we've had some success oddly um, a lot of times when um, rights are sold the people buying the rights do not want us to announce it and I'm talking major media companies and I don't understand the reasoning so while I would be able to show you the receipts that this happens a lot (laughs) i can't or else i would be breaching contract and have to return any money and would have very upset authors on my hand (laughs) so for writers who are hesitant to submit short stories to zines like yours um, or even submit fully fleshed out novels to small publishing companies it sounds like there's a greater opportunity for exposure by doing that just simply by uh, taking advantage of the connections that you have as the editor and the publisher of that zine. Okay. What I'm about to say is probably going to sound very familiar to a lot of writers, Um, especially those who have submitted to various literary markets like uh, the Paris Review or um, Conjunction. Maybe they don't pay a great deal, but it was always said in writer's circles that getting published by a prestigious journal like that got you in front of agents and film producers and television showrunners and what have you, that um, the potential value of being published with them outweighs the immediate financial compensation you receive uh i used to be skeptical of that um i i'm more of a believer now in that once you're producing what is seen as a quality product let's say you know uh an online zine professional zine like Apex Magazine or the books we do. Uh, yeah. Um, these people that like to buy, you know, rights, you know, to, to intellectual properties, they, they will seek you out. Um, I'd say at least once a week, I'm directing uh, individuals like that to the author's agents or directly to the author. Since, since Apex rarely buys like secondary rights, you know, I, I uh, have no authority or standing to negotiate or say yes or no. So it's merely my job to be a bridge in those cases. It seems like you're providing a service greater than what it appears on at at first glance. I mean, a a writer who submits a short story to your zine could potentially have that 
story exposed or, you know, get exposure to somebody who would want to pick up the rights and make a, a film out of it. Yeah. I, you know, I, the, would it, does it happen for us as often as it would for like the Paris Review or some of these, you know, other notable literary journals? I could not tell you. I just know that it's common. It may not be something that happens all the time, but it is a common thing. And it's not just, you know, film and television rights. Uh, we also forward on a lot of like audio rights, people wanting to include stories, you know, on podcasts. Um, for example, we've had LeVar Burton's people reach out to us five or six times to inquire uh, about uh, stories that we've published. Uh, and I think LeVar Burton Reads, the podcast, has actually narrated five of our stories so you know stuff like that um just recently and on a smaller scale um a flash story that we published called um cherrywood coffin uh, the author just picked up 150 bucks because she was able to sell the rights to a theater troupe that was doing an online halloween event and they wanted to perform her story. So, uh, yeah, uh, cool little stuff like that happens commonly. That's cool. That, that's encouraging. Um, so, yeah, would you um, just share a, a few words about um, how important the, uh, the first page or paragraph, how important that is in a submission? Well, you know, first impressions are all all the thing when it comes to marketing and when you're submitting something to an agent or to an editor, uh, the uh, first page or two of what you're submitting is also the most important uh, moment in the whole process. Uh, when it comes to short stories, your window for impressing the editor, showing the editor that you have a grasp on how to write a great story is very short. I can almost always um, tell if I'm going to reject the story. Uh, now, this is out of general slush pile, not stories that have been vetted by my editorial team, but I can read 250 words and tell you, okay, the story is written to this level of skill and uh, this writer likely has this much experience. Um, it's not because uh, I claim to have any kind of like special insight into uh, how writers think. It, it's merely repetition. You know, I've probably seen I was going to say tens of thousands, but that doesn't sound, that sounds too many. So we'll say thousands of submissions over the years. Uh, you just start noticing patterns. Uh, you can't help but notice patterns. Um, so in a short story, in that very first paragraph, uh, if you're a new writer, 
You want to establish character, setting, and conflict. If you can do those three within the first 200, 250 words, then odds are, unless your, your story is out there and totally inappropriate for that market, uh, the, you'll probably have that editor read at least half your story because you've given them the foundation to become interested in your work. Uh, now for novels, uh, you are given a little more leeway. Usually, you know, the first three pages, uh, but you also want to set up the conflict early. The earlier, the better. Um, introduce your main characters and be sure to keep uh, the number of characters low. And also you want to set up uh, a tone and voice and mood in your opening chapter. Uh, so that is legit advice. And I don't know that it should be considered advice. It's just suggestions from a person who does this for a living and has done it for the last 20 years or close to 20 years. Gosh, yeah. Uh, 15, <laughs> 15. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now a couple of things you said in that, um, that sparked some, some thoughts, if I could, uh, one of them was keep your character number low, like three, four, five characters, maybe. Uh, um, or, if it's a shorter yeah. story, maybe even less, right? For novel or short story, uh, definitely keep that low. Uh, if you're doing the novel, I, I would focus on your protagonist and maybe one or two other primary characters the storyline that came to mind when i was when i was envisioning this see i'm a visual person so people say things that cue visualizations in my mind uh, and one of the visualizations that i that i queued up when you said that was the tv series on netflix called dark mm -hmm. it's a it's a fantastic science fiction series about time travel but <laughs> The, uh, the, uh, the, the series introduces almost every episode a new character. Mm -hmm. And have you ever seen it? I've seen two episodes. Okay. And not only do they introduce new characters, but they introduce multiple versions of the same character. <laughs> so it's very hard to follow that, that storyline. Yeah. Um, even though it's so fascinating to watch it because it's time travel and they're going back in time and forward in time and there's multiple different timelines, but it's a, it's, it's a really hard story to follow. So yeah, if you're a, if you're a first time writer trying to bring off a, a story like that, I, you might want to put that one on the shelf for a, f a few decades. Well, so George R. R. Martin, very famous for sprawling plot and 
hundreds of named characters, right? If you go and read the first book in uh, his Game of Thrones series, the first chapter is actually, it's labeled a prologue. And um, so what's in this prologue is uh, where um, I think it's three characters and um, uh, what, what's the bad guy's name? Uh, well, antagonist. Yeah. Well, not. Uh, the antagonist, uh, it was those ice creatures, the night or villains, yeah. Anyway, the villains, I don't know what <laughs> I've never seen or read any George or uh, J.R.R. Martin in any of his works. Well, let's just say the villain. Um, he opens the book with that, with them encountering the villain and. There's just four characters in, you know, this 4,000 word prologue. And I think the reason the whole, the prologue is there, or one of the reasons is because it's a lot simpler and it will not overwhelm a, a new reader uh, like some of the subsequent chapters do with, you know, many characters so you know he's taking the time to um pull you into the story and uh does it well so the point is even in sprawling novels that you want to start out you know with smaller casts yeah just introduce enough to keep the reader's attention and get them interested yeah, and then when they're interested is when you dump it all out on them. <laughs> uh, now, the other question that I had earlier that I totally forgot as we were talking, um, it came back to me, and that is, um, do you accept submissions that have already been published? Not not for the books, but for the short stories. No, we only accept original work that has uh, first English serial rights available the future of science fiction do you have any thoughts on where the genre is heading yeah uh i think that we're seeing a broad expansion of the genre uh via globalization uh so we can expect to see a lot more chinese sci-fi and we'll see the rise of um, Eastern European SF, especially due to, uh, you know, The Witcher and stuff like uh, The Dark. I know it's Germany, not necessarily Eastern European, but um, it's kind of in that mold. Uh, so... It's kind of exciting to see that. There's also a rise in uh, African futurism. Um, we're seeing a lot of fantastic writers like Todd A. Thompson, um, Sui Okungboa uh, emerge uh, from you know the African diaspora there, and 
um, creating just a vivid, imaginative worlds, and we're going to be seeing a lot more of that uh, now. In um, terms of style, who knows? Uh, stylistically, it's always hard to prognosticate on that. What about technologies? What what type of new or, or futuristic technologies do you see um, starting to come out in the newer the newer works? I see a lot of um, interest in quantum physics in the many worlds theories, even in terms of teleportation technologies that would involve, you know, like quantum mechanics. Writers read all these excellent things from websites like Scientific American or Quantum Magazine, you know, um, their imaginations just run wild and they come up with some great concepts. Uh, one of my favorite books I've read recently is this book called Faller, a novel, F-A-L-L-E-R, for those who can't parse through my Southeast Kentucky accent, was a story about uh, this individual who was involved in a uh, quantum uh, experiment of some kind and found himself falling through the sky, landing on various platforms that were all constructions of similar things happening or similar places to be found in his home universe. And the author is a fellow named Will McIntosh, a fantastic writer. I've read several of his books. Uh, his first book was Soft Apocalypse, which is this great dystopia uh, coming of age thing. So, you know, kind of abstract concepts like that are very popular right nowadays. Cool. I'm sure that'll be appealing to some of the listeners and uh, several of the people that I, uh, are part of the post-apocalyptic community on Twitter that I'm part of. All his books are very creative that way. Very unusual. A couple more questions and then uh, we'll close this out. But uh, so for your, um, for your upcoming uh, release of your new, your, your, after the hiatus, your, your newest zine coming out, when will that be out? Yeah, that comes out in January, uh, actually January 5th. Um, go to apex-magazine.com and uh, get a subscription there, or you can sign up for a newsletter and be notified when it comes out. Uh, we do sell subscriptions and single issues, but I also would like to point out that we also uh, release all the issues content in a time-delayed fashion. So uh, on the day of release, we'll release one story uh, and then over uh, the period of two months like every week we'll put out another story or a story in an interview so that way you know if you don't have the money you can still enjoy the content that's great uh yeah that that gets exposure for your writers and it gives your readers an opportunity to to read some of that new speculative fiction and even if they're budget can't afford it yep um 
What about your your uh, publishing catalog, the books that you have coming out? Do you have anything that's uh, slated for release in the very near future? Honestly, we don't. Uh, part of, partially because uh, we've been focusing on the relaunch of the magazine. You'd be amazed at how much work start you know relaunching a major zine like this takes, even though it's strictly online only. Uh, it's still all-consuming, and um, so I've kind of put the book stuff to the side for now. But I certainly will return to it probably uh, early next year hopefully by the early second quarter and maybe even open to novel submissions then. Uh, now you have a podcast as well as the zine. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so the Apex Magazine podcast comes out monthly and it is also being relaunched along with the magazine. It's actually just it's kind of an extension of the magazine. So once a month, um, uh, we have an episode where someone narrates one of the original stories that were published in the most recent issue. Uh, our producer and podcast host is this wonderful lady, uh, Katie Brisky, out of Canada. She does a great job. Uh, we'll have new music and kind of some upgraded production. So if you're into audio, and want to hear um, professional re uh, actors and, and what have you reading our content, well, subscribe to the Apex the Magazine podcast. Um, it's uh, something I'm very proud of. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to do with it other than saying, okay, this is the story. And sometimes I help Katie find uh, narrators. So if people are interested in subscribing or uh, purchasing a book from your catalog or learning more about your company, how can people get in contact with you? Um, primarily, the best way is through our two websites. Uh, the book side, you go to apexbookcompany.com. There you can find our whole catalog and you can order directly from us or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects. Uh, now the magazine is over on apex-magazine.com. Don't forget the little dash between two words, otherwise you'll go to the wrong apex. Um, there uh, you'll find the landing page, which will link you to the latest issue and you will see buttons all over the website saying subscribe. If you click any of those, it'll take you to the subscribing product page and uh, you just hit the buy button and the rest is your normal checkout process. Um, there you can also find our index of all the fiction we've published, which is over 2 million words of it, uh, 450 different original short stories, um, tons of nonfiction. Also, I have a uh, every two or three weeks series called Four Writers, where I 
um, pontificate about certain writing topics. Um, and sometimes I have uh, guest contributors. Um, for example, Lisa Connor recently wrote a Submissions 101 essay. And uh, my last essay was about uh, writing, um, one of my recent essays was about writing an uh, effective opening. So cool. Something we touched on a little bit earlier in this episode. Yeah, it's, it's a topic I talk a lot about. <laughs> All right, Jason, man, it was great talking to you. And thanks for coming on Dead Hand Radio. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.